Father, Psalm 119 says, those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. In the Old Testament, they just had, well, they didn't have the whole Bible, but we do. And we are so thankful for your word and for the power of your word, and that it has the ability to calm us down. Your truth can lower blood pressure. Your truth can manage stress. Your truth can extinguish anxiety because it's your word. And as Psalm 119 says, the sum of thy word. When you add it all up, when you add up the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, the sum, the total of your word is truth. Uh, this is why we're here tonight, again, to study your word. We, we can't live without this book. We are inundated with perspectives and philosophies and solutions that are absolutely contrary to what you say. But your word steers us correctly. And we want to follow what Jesus said in John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So we thank you for freedom in Christ. We thank you for forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, that he took our sins upon him, and he paid them in full. And that when we turn to him and turn from our sin and ask him to receive us and to forgive us, he accepts us, and we're accepted in him. And we are adopted into your family through the blood of Christ. And we are given eternal life. We're born again. We keep checking this book because it's our nourishment, it's our food, it's our vitamins, our antioxidants. We can't live without it. So tonight, nourish us, feed us, feed our souls, feed our minds. Bring our, our, um, our anxieties under control as you teach us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our study on the Ten Commandments. We are on the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not, if you use the King James commit adultery. We have said this over each week that that commandment is a protection of God's institution of marriage, which is the cornerstone bedrock relationship that all human civilization is built upon. The great composer Mozart was once criticized by his rich patron, 
the Emperor of Austria for, created, for creating music that contained too many notes. The Emperor suggested that a few of them should be cut. Mozart asked which few he had in mind. In our day, our culture thinks that the Ten Commandments are too many. And in our day, the one that our culture would like to see cut more than any other is, you shall not commit adultery. Because we, uh, those of us old enough to remember the 60s, that's when that sexual revolution began. Uh, it, it is now utterly and totally out of control. And no restraints, no inhibitions are welcome. It should be whatever you want, whenever you want, without consequences. That's what our culture is after, and that's what our culture worships. But that's not God's plan. Tonight, just two points on our outline. This is what you call a simple outline. The first point is simply this. What marriage should be, the second point of the outline is what marriage shouldn't be. We'll spend very little time on the first one, what marriage should be. We'll spend the majority of our time tonight on the second, what marriage shouldn't be. So, what marriage should be. We've talked about this before, that God is the inventor, the creator, not only of the universe, not only of the world, but of mankind. All things were created by him and for him and through him. And he created marriage. He owns marriage. He has the copyright on marriage. He has the trademark on marriage. Marriage belongs to him. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is the essence of marriage that you'll find in, in Genesis. I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bible, to Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. We could go to a lot of passages to answer the question what marriage should be, but Psalm 127 and 128 go together, and I think they give an ex excellent um, description of what marriage is about. It's not the Hallmark Channel. It's not some romantic comedy. It's not, it's, it's bigger than that. It's more significant than that. It affects generations. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. The cities in Israel had walls. And at night, the watchman would patrol to keep enemies out, to make sure things were safe, that people were protected. 
But you see, he can't do it by himself. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Uh, humans are about building. But if the Lord is not involved in what you're building, it's in vain. Verse 2, it's vain for you to rise up early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Why do we get up early? Why do we labor? Why do we work so hard? Because you have a family. Because they need provision. They need food. They need shelter. They need clothing. That's why so much of our life as men is spent in working. That's God's desire. Then you get into children. So we, we haven't spent, spent a whole lot of time on this, but already what you've got in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Well, I mean, really what you're talking about historically is a husband and wife. They're building a family. They're building, they got a home, they're building a family. Uh, everybody worked. Back in the Old Testament, you didn't go to Walmart, you didn't go to Sam's Club, you didn't go to Costco to get your stuff. Everybody worked. And you asked the Lord for provision and for help and to send rainfall, and people were very aware of how dependent they were upon his provision at the right time. Then you get the children in verse 3. And what's the core of all this, by the way? Marriage. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. That's where all of the commerce, that's where all of the business took place. You had a wall. And then you had a gate that was the business center, that was the financial center, that was, and as a man got older and as a man started to age and as he started to lose the energy and the capabilities that he had for all those years and all those decades, it was a blessing to have sons, sons who would honor their father but would assist their father. You see, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Then you go to Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, who walks with God. Enoch walked with God. You're just walking with the Lord each day. You get up and you say, Lord Jesus, I need your direction. I need your guidance. I need your favor. Thank you for your mercies yesterday. I've said this before, but it's true. When I get up in the morning within about 10 minutes, I have quoted to myself Lamentations 321. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Because the way I'm wired, honestly, when I wake up, I got a little bit of depression. That's how I'm wired. It, it's, it, you know, <laughs> you know, you get just a little bit of arthritis or you get a little bit of 
I wake up with a little bit of depression, and what I got to do is I got to fight it off. How do I do that? I quote to myself and to the Lord, Lamentations 3.21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. And, and then what I do is I just, I'll, I got my Bible and I got my coffee, but I'll spend some time just thanking the Lord for his mercies from yesterday. And I'll just enumerate them. Thank you for this and for that phone call. And thank you for that interaction. And even that situation that remains unsure, I, I, I know that you're working there. And I'm trusting you with how that's going to be resolved, you see. I'm counting on mercy at the right time. And see, what that does is that calibrates me. It's like going to the chiropractor and you're, <clears throat> you see? I, I don't need to be depressed. What am I down about? This past week, I had a phone call with someone early, and um, it's someone I really care about, and it was, I, I felt depressed when it was over. I did, because I, they're in a tough spot. And I, and I thought, you know what? I, I, can't be, I can't be down all day over this. You're at work here, Lord. So I, quote, I quoted Psalm 42 to myself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Well, I knew why I was cast down, because that phone call and some things that, you know, had occurred, and gosh... But see, I, there's no reason to stay down. Why? Because of the next verse. When you're down, ask yourself why you're down. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you cast down within me? But don't, don't stop there. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. So that was earlier in the week. And there was a conversation late this afternoon with the report of, a saving act. <laughs> so you see, that, that's our rock. That's our foundation. If you fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is clean. You don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything or any situation because of who he is. Not a it's an awe. It's an amazement at his power, at his wisdom, at his mercy, at his goodness. You see, and you build your life upon it. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. 
When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Man, in our culture, that's the last thing you want. Um, you've got how many kids? You've got three kids? Man, it used to be three was nothing. But you understand, things change. Your wife shall be a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. You see, the blessing of God is all in the context of family, which is based on marriage, which is based on a covenant with the Lord God Almighty. Uh, back around uh, March or April, we had our kids and the grandkids over. And, and I can't remember what the occasion was, but it was some occasion. And uh, just, we were all around the table and the food was on the table. And just as I was getting ready to pray, my youngest son, Josh, who was sitting right next to me with his uh, wife, Laura. Josh said, hey, Dad, real quick. Uh, I need to make an announcement. We're going to have a baby. <laughs> what? And I mean, everybody just went crazy. Right? Wow, you're kidding. I mean, at first, I thought, and we all at first thought he was kidding us. And he wasn't kidding. And I'm watching all of this, and it was great. I mean, it was, it was about as good as it gets. And, you know, it was getting out of their chair and coming over and hugging everybody. And, you know, we pick up Laura and go put her on the couch and we feed her with a, a little joke there. But, I mean, it was, you can imagine how happy everyone was. And then after a couple of minutes, you know, we're just, Josh said, well, hey, 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 let's keep talking, but... I didn't mean to interrupt the whole meal. It's getting cold. He said, sorry, Dad, go ahead and pray. And I started to pray, and I couldn't talk because I choked up because I was watching that scene. And I was thinking of this. And I was so choked up, I went, And I had tears in my eyes. And Josh reached over and said, that's all right, Dad. John, go ahead and pray. So John prayed, because John was hungry. <laughs> that's special. See, that's what marriage is supposed to be. It's generational. And my mom was there, who's 91. And I remember everyone saying, so when do you think you're due? When do you think you're due? Well, December 25th. No. Little guy, I think, showed up three days before Christmas. Little James, named after my dad. But Christmas morning, guess who came marching in? Josh and Laura. And little James. That was pretty neat. 
And then we had to eat dinner again. And I took a steroid shot so I could pray. Because that's as good as it gets, isn't it? Now, let's talk about what marriage should not be. Should not be because we live in a fallen world. And uh, we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're redeemed, but we still fight sin. And there is still spiritual warfare, and there is still spiritual battle. Uh, let's turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet. Uh, some call it Malachi. And it's actually easy to find. Some books are hard in the Old Testament. If you find Matthew, just go left. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And what you have in Malachi is God is very, very displeased with the spiritual leaders of the nation. And he gives a series of rebukes to them in the book of Malachi. Uh, he is speaking directly to the priest in Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then God says, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And then he is going to give a list of how they have despised his name. He's speaking to the spiritual leaders of the nation. When you get to chapter 2, Verse 13, he talks about marriage and divorce, and along with that would go sexual immorality. 2.13 of Malachi, this, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they're making sacrifices. Well, why isn't the Lord blessing us? Uh, yet you say, for what reason? What's happening here? Why isn't, well, you know, oh, Lord, we weep and we pray. Well, here's, here's the reason. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Not contract, by covenant. When, when we marry, we, there are two kinds of marriage. There's civil marriage and there's covenant marriage. We, Mary and I and my mom watched uh, a movie oh, a couple of weeks ago on C.S. Lewis called Shadowlands. Um, if you know anything about Lewis, the man who was an atheist who became the great apologist of Christianity, wrote wonderful children's books that the metaphors of Aslan the great lion who is Jesus. But if you know his story, he was a bachelor uh, until 1956. He married a woman named Joy Davidman. She, was, uh, she had quite a background, a, a Jewess, a, a political radical, a communist, who through reading his books had come to know the Lord 
her, uh, she had come to England with her son. Her husband was still in America, and they had corresponded, and she was a writer of some renown herself, and visited Lewis and his brother. And anyway, they developed a relation here, here and there. They would see each other, just platonic. At a certain point, she was going to have to leave the country and didn't want to because of how well her son was going, and it was really unwise for her to go back. Her husband had a trail of immorality, but she was going to have to go back. This is really unusual, but uh, she talked with Lewis, and uh, her favor was, would you marry me? And he did, so that she could stay in the country and that her son could be taken care of and that they could be safe. Now, he's a lifelong bachelor. What he didn't count on, and then they got married, and as soon as the marriage was over, he and his brother hopped back on the train going back up to Oxford. Shake hands. Nice to see you. God's favor upon you. It was just platonic. But as they would see each other more frequently, something happened, neither one of them planned on, they actually fell in love. And he missed her, and he wanted to be with her, and he longed to be in her company, and for her wit, and for her sarcasm, and for her deep questions, and suddenly there was this, and she got cancer. And it was bad. Uh, at a certain point, he said, I want us to be married. He was an Anglican. I want us to be married as husband and wife before God. You see, a civil ceremony is just one where you are asking the government to acknowledge but Christian marriage is a covenant in the presence of God. God is a witness. God is aware. The two become one. Any covenant requires two parties, but you see, the two become one flesh. So therefore, to have a covenant, there must be another. That's the Lord God. So, anyway. And they had a... Anglican priest come in, and she was in the hospital bed, and they were married. And then she was in remission for a while, and they had, a, from civil marriage to her death was four years. Huh. Uh, in Malachi, three, uh, Malachi 2, you have a description of what marriage shouldn't be. You have priests who are dealing treacherously with their wives. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to delve into this, except to say they were divorcing them on a whim like we do today, or like a wife can do today to a husband, on a whim, and you can't stop it. Uh, there would have been sexual immorality, because when they divorced, they weren't, these, these guys were not following the Lord at all. They were just in name only priests. But they had no interest in serving the Lord or in honoring his name. So there would have been accompanying sexual immorality and all kinds of things. Uh, that is not 
how God wants this to be. There's no stability, there's no love, there's no sacrifice, there's no care, there's no empathy, there's, it, it's, it's not how it's supposed to be. Because the Lord is not at the center of it. So there's our outline, what marriage should be. Secondly, what marriage shouldn't be. Now, here's where I want to plant a flag and spend the rest of our time tonight. We've been talking about the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And the fact that what, a, what that commandment does is that it protects marriage and the stability and the wholesomeness and the generational blessings that are passed on in that context of marriage and the favor of God is upon that. Um, I, I need to say this again. Whenever you talk about divorce, it's just a tragedy. Our country, we used to have laws that, that were against divorce because divorce destabilizes. But what's happened is that as our culture has shifted away from God being the center to us being the center, it's all about us. Everyone wants to be their own little God. Everybody wants to do their own thing. Everybody wants to be happy. And nothing can stand in the way of happiness, whatever they think that happiness may be. It's, it's all changed. So as a result, in the 60s, the first state, of course, was California to come up with no-fault divorce. And then the other states follow suit. So now you can divorce on a whim. We all know that. Some of you are here. You've been through a divorce. You didn't want the divorce. Nothing you could do to stop it. Now before this, you know, what, 65, 66, you could have stopped it. No more. You understand where we are. There is an anarchy when it comes to God's morality. Marriage is not protected anymore. You're willing to reconcile, you're willing to go to counseling, you're willing to forgive, you're willing to... And that's what marriages do. But when the other person refuses, there's not a thing you can do, and you cannot keep the marriage together. God understands that. Where I want to plant a flag tonight is... is what is such a great tragedy, and that is when... Sexual immorality and adultery invades the church of Jesus Christ and specifically invades the leadership of the church. And there is an epidemic of this. <clears throat> this last week has been interesting. Last Thursday afternoon, I was... Um, I was running around doing some errands. I got a text from a guy who uh, has been involved in a, in a large church with a great biblical influence in another section of the country. Uh, strong Bible teaching church, strong men's ministry. I have been up there over the years probably four or five times at least. Um, they, 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 are, um, they are doing a stellar job with, with thousands and thousands and thousands of men. They really are. 
I had not talked with him for several years since the last time I was up there to do a conference. He asked if I had any time over the next few days to talk, and I texted him back, and I said, I'm just driving around doing some errands. Are you free? He called me. Um, he was telling me what had, what had transpired at the church. Just in the last year, the senior pastor in this church built on the word of God had to resign because of an adulterous affair. But that was on the heels of the executive pastor resigning for an adulterous affair that had been going on for decades. It's on the front page of the, of the paper in that region because that is the most significant and well-known church in the area. What is the impact when unbelievers who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ read something like that? What a bunch of fakes. What a bunch of frauds. Yeah, those guys are all the same. They're all alike. There's, there's, there's no legitimacy to that stuff. You can't trust those guys. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's just... And then the thousands of people that go to that church and love Christ and love the word and their children and their grandchildren, not one leader, but two. Two trusted leaders. We talked for a while, I hung up, and I, I was reminded that just this past year, Bill Hybels was to celebrate 40 years at Willow Creek Community Church in a suburb of Chicago. That's probably, Willow Creek probably over the last 40, were, uh, 40 years, the most uh, influential evangelical church in the United States. The, the tragedy is, is that um, before he was going to actually retire, he had to resign. Here's one of many articles in Christianity Today. Bill Hybels resigns from Willow Creek. Hybels, who had previously planned to retire in October, revealed the news Tuesday evening at a family meeting where about 1,000 Willow Creek members gathered at the flagship campus in South Barrington. Uh, the crowd listened in silence as their longtime pastor began to read a 12-minute long prepared statement. Um, what had happened is that over the years, there had been women who had come forward to the older board, who had been on staff, who were members of the church, and said, he approached me, he did this, he did this. And it was sloughed off, and it was ignored, and it was absolutely buried. Not one, not two, but many. Um, that's tragic. So he had it in place. He was going to retire. He appointed two of his staff to step in to give leadership. 
woman on staff to be the primary teaching pastor. I'm always interested, these guys that are so seemingly um, embracing of women, and but then you find out, not all of them, but you find out they've got more than one way to embrace a woman. If you get my drift. Instead of following what the scripture says, that men are to be elders, they appoint women as elders. And women teach. Um, when all this finally came down, if I am not mistaken, in fact, I looked it up, at least what was on the website, the majority of elders at Willow Creek were women. And when you're good with manipulating women, you're good at manipulating women. Just saying. So he appoints the gal to be the primary lead pastor and one of the guys to be the executive pastor, and it all starts falling apart. And woman after woman after woman who had been on staff for years, for decades, and He's denied it, but they actually, the whole elder board had to, they resigned and they put in place an oversight committee of people not even in the church, but leaders in the body of Christ to try to make sense out of this crisis. I was thinking about all this Thursday afternoon. Then a day or two later, uh, there were signs that there was going to be a report coming out in the Houston paper about the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and about the sexual abuse that has been taking place. And let me say this. And sexual cover-ups is just not in Southern Baptist. Uh, Jack Hayford is sort of the dean of the Pentecostals and Charismatics. He recently wrote a book on the history of Pentecostalism, which doesn't go back too far, just in 1906, by the way, and the Charismatic Movement. In there, one thing, and I commend him for taking it on, he was talking about their history and the leaders and all, and at a certain point, he had to deal why, with the question, why was there so much sexual morality among the leaders of the Pentecostal Movement and the modern Charismatic Movement? And he, to his credit, he took it on. I actually did a little bit of research. It wasn't official, but a while back, Trinity Broadcasting Network, which I don't watch too often, but I watched it for a series of nights because I was kind of doing a survey on how many of their guests and preachers and ministry leaders had actually left their wife been involved in adultery and had been restored, uh, the, for the, the while, the, the weeks that I watched it, I would say it was running about 70%. And then earlier in the week, I had gotten an email from a ministry, one of Billy Graham's uh, nephews, uh, Boz Chavidian, 
who is an attorney that deals with uh, sexual abuse cases in churches. That's pretty much what he does. He has a firm asking me if I could do an interview by phone because of a situation in a church I'm aware of in another state and another place. That's being covered up. To the credit of the leaders of the Southern Baptist, their new president, J.D. Greer and Russell Moore, these guys are repentant. They're, they're weeping with those who weep. They're concerned about the victims. Um, they're calling it great wickedness, and they've actually thanked the Houston paper for uncovering this, to their credit, and taking what was in the darkness and bringing it into the light. You can read the articles. Uh, it's just not in the Southern Baptist movement. It's anywhere in the body of Christ. Um, because we have an enemy. And one of the primary ways that the enemy works is through sexual temptation. Let's look, let's look at some verses. First, we're going to go to James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter judgment. That's a sobering passage. So, those who teach, those have leadership responsibility in the church will be judged by a higher standard than those who are not in leadership teaching positions in the church. That's straight from the Lord himself. Then if you flip over, the next few verses are in 1 Timothy. If you go left and you go over to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, talking of the requirements, the character requirements that must be in the life of a man who is appointed to be an elder in the church. A 3.1 says it's a trustworthy statement if a man aspires to the office of overseer, elder. It's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, again, elder, can be translated either way, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. And then he has a whole list of things that are all character attributes that are in the present tense. Then go to 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Paul is giving a personal word to young Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, who is pastoring. And he says in 416, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Uh, the temptation in ministry. The temptation, if you're gifted up front, is to pay close attention to your teaching. But you're just asking for it, if that's all you pay attention to. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. This is serious stuff. You cannot, you cannot separate 
what you preach from how you live. You can't do it. Now, you, you can do it, but there are eternal consequences. And then 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Some of you know I've been working on this revision of the book I did in 1990, Point Man. And as I'm preparing for Wednesday nights, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm working on this revision. I'm in this chapter that I titled Real Men Don't. Real men don't commit adultery. May I quote myself and some others here? This was 30 years ago I wrote this. Adultery has even become acceptable for spiritual leaders. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have an epidemic of adultery in the pulpit is that it no longer carries severe consequences. The reason that it does not include severe consequences is that we no longer consider it a severe act. When a gifted spiritual leader commits sexual sin, our greatest concern is how quickly he can be restored to ministry. Adultery used to mean that a man would give up the privilege of ministry. Now with time off for good behavior, at that it means that after a year or so, he may re-enter the pulpit and continue to minister. So let's face it. Adultery has become acceptable behavior for leaders in the evangelical church. Then I quote um, Chuck Swindoll. Chuck wrote this about 40 years ago. Ministry is a character profession. To put it bluntly, you can sleep around and still be a good brain surgeon. You can cheat on your mate and have little trouble continuing to practice law. Apparently, it is no problem to stay in politics and plagiarize. You can be a successful salesperson and cheat on your income tax, but you cannot do those things as a Christian or as a minister and, continuing, and continue to enjoy the Lord's blessing. You must do right in order to have true integrity. If you can't come to terms with evil or break habits that continue to bring reproach to the name of Christ, please do the Lord and us a great favor and resign. It's about as straight as it gets. I've heard some say, well, David committed adultery and was forgiven. And he was a spiritual leader in Israel. Yes, he was a king, but there were three offices in Israel. There was prophet, priest, and king. He wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he was a king. Um, we need to understand something. And we thank God for his grace and mercy and we thank him for forgiveness of any sin. When we are truly repentant and turn from our sin, our idols, and, and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin with brokenness in our hearts. Forgiveness is free, but leadership is earned. Let me say it again. In the church, forgiveness is free, but leadership is earned.
Charles Spurgeon, who died, what, 1890? Perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the church wrote this. I hold very stern opinions with regard to Christian men who have fallen into gross sin. Uh, he is, uh, as I recall, this is in his book called Lectures to My Students. He had a college for young ministers being trained. If I'm not mistaken, this comes out of that. So he's talking to young ministers. But may I say this? If you're a husband, a Christian husband, if you're a Christian father, you're in the ministry. Every family is a small church. And you're the pastor. You're a grandpa. You're a father. You're the pastor of that little family, of that little church. So Spurgeon said, I hold very stern opinions with regard to Christian men who have fallen into gross sin. I rejoice that they may be truly converted and may be mingled with hope and caution received into the church. But I question, gravely question, whether a man who has grossly sinned should be very readily restored to the pulpit. As John Angel James remarks, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. But see, not in our day. Because it's all about giftedness. So accusations, one woman comes forward, another comes forward, another comes forward. Uh, what, what, what does that passage say in First? Timothy 5, it says don't receive an accusation except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Well, what if you have four or five or six or seven or eight or nine? And then it says and rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sinning. But see, when you're on a board, the temptation is, well, my gosh, this whole church is built around this guy. I mean, he is so incredibly gifted. I mean, we can't, what's going to happen? What, what if this were to come out? So instead of following the word of God, what do you do? You cover. You cover your tail. You start worrying about what men are going to think. Jesus is head of the church. How about trying to do what he says? It's not your church. It's his church. Well, we might lose members. Or the giving might go down. I mean, people, uh, we got this mortgage. Uh, you ever thought about trusting him? You ever considered obeying him, doing the right thing, and trusting him? That's called integrity. That's real leadership. People will follow that. But what they despise is a cover-up. We all despise cover-ups. Um, I am grateful that as a young guy in ministry, I had some mentors who were the right kind of men, who loved, who loved Christ, who loved the Word of God, and uh, did not operate out of fear. They, um, they weren't people pleasers. They weren't politicians. 
they didn't always just look at the bottom line. They looked at what God said and they did it. I'm thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about Ray Stedman in California, Peninsula Bible Church. I'm just a young guy in my college years. I started going there. Now, some of you are not familiar with Ray Stedman, a great, great Bible teacher. Uh, it's on record that Chuck Swindoll once said, when I grow up, I want to be Ray Stedman. Ray was a man of God. And he started Peninsula Bible Church with some other, actually they started a group of men and then Ray came in. And years later, they decided to start an internship program and their first intern was this young guy from Dallas Seminary named Chuck Swindoll. And then his second intern was this guy, this kid from South America that, that Ray had met down there named Luis Palau. And Ray discipled them both. Uh, and I loved hanging around Ray Stedman. I loved it. He, he grew up as a Montana, grew up Montana, cowboy. He was a man's man. His father left when he was just a kid. Uh, but he was a man's man. He had a love for Christ. He was, he was just a real deal. Very authentic, very real, very transparent. I, I remember being in a Bible study. I, I, I just finished college and I was getting ready to go to seminary and I was driving a truck and I'd go to Bible studies at Peninsula Bible Church. I was saving money. And in one of our Bible studies, there was a couple that would come in their 30s and, you know, the guy was real sharp and a leader in the church and all this kind of stuff. Well, it, I found this out a little later. He was having an affair with another gal and it became known to the attention of couple of friends. Um, Bob Smith, who was an associate pastor at Peninsula Bible Church, wrote a book called When All Else Fails, Read the Directions. It was on how to govern and lead a church. But what a title, huh? So what do you do when someone comes forward and says, you know, da-da-da, or when you see something in a friend's life who's walking with the Lord and you begin to realize... Why is that guy, why have I seen him three different times in three months having lunch with that same gal around town in different restaurants? They don't work together. You know, you start adding, you know, you get it. Matthew 18. Instead of covering up, you obey the word of God. So in Matthew 18, there are steps given so that you don't wind up the situation doesn't wind up in the Houston Chronicle or on the nightly news or all over see the we want to cover we want to hide but as leaders the job is to bring what's in the darkness into the light so in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 Jesus says if your brother sins go and show him his fault in private just go talk to your brother your friend hey man I'm concerned about you I've been noticing you know I've just noticed now three times I've seen you around town with this gal what's what's going on how you doing in your marriage how you doing with your wife 
not bulldozing the guy. You're just concerned. You care about it. You love the guy. It's the same principle that's in Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if any of you fall, 6-1, brethren, if any of you fall into any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the brother that's, you know, having lunch, you know, as you're talking to him, you love him, and you realize you're looking at yourself, and man, that could happen to me. We're all susceptible. So you're, you're not trying to destroy the guy. You're trying to rescue the guy. You're trying to get his attention. Hey, the bridge is out 300 yards around that corner, and it's a 1,000-foot drop. You're trying to save his life. So go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's the whole point is to win him. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that... By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So this guy in the Bible study that I was attending, one of the pastors who was close to him, went and talked with him in private. I found this out after the fact. And uh, he wouldn't listen. He denied it, put it off, no big deal, just friend, no, huh? And weeks and weeks went by, and they're still talking, but he's still going to church, still involved, but he's not responding. After I don't know how many weeks it was, they take the next step. That pastor got two others who knew him as well, he was friends with, and they went to talk to him. And he really didn't like that. He resented it. Who are you? Got? Here's the big line. Who are you to judge me? <clears throat> well, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. 1 Corinthians 5 Paul says there's a man in the church living with his father's wife. Even the pagans don't do that. Remove the wicked man from your midst. And then Paul goes on and says at the end of the chapter, what do I have to do with judging outsiders, non-Christians? We don't judge non-Christians because they live immoral lives. They're non-Christians. But those in the church, we judge we judge. Christ does not want sin to go unchecked in the body. Just like you don't want a tumor to go unchecked. It's got to be dealt with. It has to be taken out. For the life of the body. And then the third step, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, they were getting ready to announce on a Sunday that this guy would not respond. They were going to publicly on a Sunday morning announce that he was being put out of the fellowship. And the Friday night before, he broke and confessed his sin and came clean. And it saved his life. And it saved his marriage. Another situation happened that I saw as a young guy. Actually, I was not there at the time. I was a young pastor in another place. But a man who had come to know the Lord, who was brilliant, had a, 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 quite a crazy lifestyle before he came to know Christ, but came to the Lord and was 
at the church and became strong in the scriptures and had a ministry and mentoring a lot of the young men came to their attention that there had been a sexual relationship with one of the young guys. So they go and they talk with him. He denies it. You know, they take two, two or three more. They follow Matthew 18. This went on for weeks. So we're trying to get through to this guy, save his life. He, he, he just absolutely dug in. On a Sunday morning, they got up and had to put him out of the church. And let me tell you, this guy was popular. Did it hurt their attendance? Yeah. Did it hurt their giving? I'm sure it did. But they loved him, but they followed the word of God. A couple of years later, this guy who was a brilliant, was so miserable, he put together a concoction of chemicals and drank it in order to kill himself. And he woke up the next morning in the ER. He was very angry at God. Kept living the lifestyle. The Spirit of God, the hound of heaven was after him. A couple of years later, he does another dose, a bigger dose, because this time he's really going to take himself out. Once again, he wakes up the next morning in ER. And he said, okay, God, I give in. And he went to Ray and the elders, confessed his sin, repented, and they had a great big prodigal son party. And he was restored. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be covered up. It's not supposed to be put in a closet somewhere. The scriptures are to be obeyed and the scriptures are to be followed. Now, about, what about the one who has committed the sin? And, you know, it's just not sexual sin. It's just not sexual sin in the church. There are all kinds of sin. There's pride. There's selfish ambition. The enemy plays hardball. He's not messing around. He wants to take Christian men out by whatever means, by whatever your Achilles heel might be. It may not be sexual for you. It might be something else. It might be money. It might be fame. It might be pride. I mean, we're subject to all these things. But be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let's finish out with Psalm 32. We're all sinners. We sin in different ways. We have different weaknesses. David was a man after God's own heart. And yes, David committed adultery and then in turn committed murder. And after a year of hiding it and covering it, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And there are two Psalms of repentance that David wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. The genuine repentance, Thomas Watson said, is the vomiting of the soul. It's not just a superficial, oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's, it, it's a heartbreak over what you have done. It's a heartbreak. And in Psalm 51, David says to the Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband, and had him killed to the family. Yeah, but ultimately it's to God. But in Psalm 32, 
where David is also expressing his, his repentance after hiding it and covering it for a year. Watch this. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Doesn't matter what the transgression is. Whatever it is you have done, there is no sin beyond the reach of Christ to forgive. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Yes, that's right. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, when you repent, you're absolutely coming clean. Utterly, totally coming clean. All the cards are on the table. You're not holding back anything. That's repentance. It's not political repentance. It's the real repentance. Watch what happens when he tried to cover his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body, literally my bones, wasted away. The weight, the crushing weight of living with constant guilt. Not false guilt, real guilt. Through my groaning all day long. When you're covering sin, you can't enjoy life. When you're, co when you, when you're covering up sin, there's no joy. You, you are... You're walking on thin ice, you're walking on eggshells, and you're always wondering if you're going to be found out that day. Because you can be sure your sin will find you out. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. <laughs> That's the discipline of, all, of God Almighty. That's the discipline of the Father. He's not going to let you get away with this if you belong to him. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. This guy was exhausted from his own sin and covering up. Watch the turnaround in five. I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What you've got here, and there are more verses, but what you've got here is you've got repentance. And when there's repentance, there is then forgiveness. And then the question is, will God ever lead me again? Will ever God ever put his hand on my life again? Look at verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God's not done with him. God's the father, he's the son. He had to be severely disciplined. But God still has a plan for his life. Now, is he forgiven? Yes. Well, were there consequences in David's life that he dealt with all of his life because of the choices that he made? Yes. But God gave him grace to get through. And God was faithful to him. God says, when there's repentance... God gives forgiveness, and he gives guidance, and he gives favor, and he gives direction as to 
Where do I go from here? He'll show you what to do. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. Don't fight me. Don't resist me. Obey me. Obey me. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's the thing. Do we keep them all? No. But when you don't obey, deal with it. Don't wait a year. Don't do it. Keep really short accounts. The next chapter I'm working on in here is on prayer. You know, you read about these great men of God, these great guys that conquered nations for the gospel. They would pray. Martin Luther said, if I don't pray four hours in the morning, I can't get anything done. Well, how does that make me feel? <laughs> or praying hide who ministered in India. He would pray six, seven, eight hours, and he thought it was 20 minutes. That's never happened to me. Has it happened to you? Those guys had extraordinary gifts from God. They had extraordinary callings, and they were endowed with extraordinary gifts. Most of us are just normal and average guys. Do you have to pray for an hour every day or two? No. So in this little chapter, I'm just saying, hey, there are text prayers. You can, and I say this reverently, you can text the Lord mentally. You're walking in that meeting, Jesus, I need wisdom. As I'm walking in this door, I need your wisdom right now. That's all you need to say. You're in a conversation with your daughter, and she's beside herself, and you're not sure, Jesus, I just need your wisdom. You don't have to utter it, you just think it. Right? You just walk with him. You just walk with him. I will instruct you and teach you. I got this meeting coming up. I, man, I mean, my whole job, my whole career is on the line right here. Oh, Jesus said to his disciples, it shall be given to you in that hour what you will say. Yeah, prepare, but don't be surprised if he gives you something you never thought of. Because he's for you. And he loves you. And he died for you. And he's a savior. So why would you cover it? And why would you fight him? <laughs> in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. So Father, we come to you because we're sinners, but we thank you for the blood of Jesus which cleanses us from all sin. Thank you that you remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And not only do you remove our sin, not only do you forgive our sin, but you don't remember our sin. You said in Hebrews, your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's astonishing to us. I pray for the man who is here, who is living a lie right now and who is covering something that he is so afraid of it coming into the light but it has to come into the light the worst thing is to continue in the darkness I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in his heart so that he will confess that 
to you and confess it to a pastor, a friend who walks closely with you, that he will no longer be estranged from you or for other, from others in the body of Christ. Bring healing, bring deliverance. Restore to him the joy of your salvation. Thank you that there will be a day where we don't deal with sin anymore. It will be taken away forever. And when we've been there a hundred billion years, it's just getting started. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.